we journey in uh, to Easter, this morning we're looking at the idea of grasping His majesty, something that I think as uh, Western Christians we struggle with oftentimes, understanding uh, that He is King of kings and that He is Lord of lords. A topic actually, as we were finishing up Second Peter, that kept on coming up, uh, God, God's authority, Christ's authority, His reign, His rule. Uh, and so we're going to be looking this morning as we deal with uh, the triumphal entry or His coronation. Uh, humble coronation of the king. And I put here, it seems as a populace, especially now we're all a bit enamored with royalty, uh, especially English royalty. And even though as a country uh, we fought and won a war to be freed from that royalty, uh, we seem drawn into their life and drama. All you have to do is look at how successful the books are, uh, the TV shows are, the movies are. And the central figure of that monarchy uh, for the past 70 plus years, I guess you say until a recent death, was Queen Elizabeth II. And it was fascinating, I was doing a little research on how she ascended to the throne, her coronation celebration, as we're looking at Christ versus uh, the queen or the royalty that I think the world would recognize as the premier uh, royal family. And her coronation was quite the elaborate affair. Uh, It took place in Westminster Abbey, uh, which has been done that way for the past 900 years. It was the first one to be televised, watched by 27 million people in the United Kingdom, not to mention the millions around the world, driven from Buckingham Palace to Westminster Abbey in a golden coach, and she wore a special coronation dress made for the occasion, worn only six other times in her lifetime, uh, carrying a bouquet of all-white flowers, orchids, lily of the valley, carnations, flowers from around her kingdom, basically. On her head, she wore the state diadem, which had 1,333 diamonds and 169 pearls. There was 8,200-some guests, of which 129 nations and territories were represented. 2,000 journalists and 500 photographers from 92 nations were there on the coronation route, documenting every step. That's why you can, everything's in pictures, everything's written up. Uh, The coronation of a sovereign is a big deal, and it's especially huge when it's for the English monarch. Yet the magnitude of her coronation, the seeming importance of that event, uh, can never compare to the coronation of the only true king. And my goal this morning is that we'll grasp the importance of his journey into Jerusalem Uh, grasp the importance of how we should respond to that. Now, the queen's coronation was somewhat sudden. She was 27 years old, living in Kenya when her dad suddenly passed away. Uh, He was sick. They knew that, but it was a bit untimely. And so she was brought from Kenya to be crowned queen, but still the majority of her nation and many worldwide turned out to see it. Christ's triumphal march, his coronation, on the other hand, was predicted in Daniel 9, 24 through 26, more than 500 years prior, an event of eternal magnitude. As one commentator notes, through Daniel, the Lord predicted that the time from Xerxes' decree ordering the rebuilding of the temple, which was 445 BC, until the coming of the Messiah would be seven weeks and 62 weeks. A total of 483 Jewish years, and those years consisted of 360 days. And so, most likely, his triumphal entry took place on the ninth day of Nisan, A.D. 30, predicted in Daniel. Whenever you're reading about the weeks in Daniel, they're not predicting his death, they're predicting his entry into Jerusalem, his triumphal march, his coronation. 
Now, the king of kings coronation was like no other before or after because he doesn't come in a golden carriage nor upon noble horses. Instead, he comes riding in on a donkey. He came journeying to Jerusalem for the Passover. He's coming to the end of his earthly journey, coming with the purpose to die. And he would never wear a royal crown, only a thorny one. He does it all in fulfillment of prophecy. One of those is Zechariah 9.9, which states, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. He had earlier been through Jericho. Understand his, his journey in. Oftentimes, and I mention this when I preach through Mark, I mention this. We have in our mind Sunday school pictures. You always see Jesus with t- 10 sheep and three people talking and teaching, and it's the wrong picture that's being painted. As he comes in to Jerusalem, as he journeys here, he goes through Jericho and he heals two blind men. That causes the already large crowd that's been accompanying him to swell even greater. Then he arrives in Bethany and most likely staying with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, who, by the way, we we know has been recently raised from the dead, and who is the topic of constant conversation in Jerusalem. Now, around this Passover, it's estimated that two million people were gathered in Jerusalem at this time, and many think as many as 100,000 people would have been part of his triumphal entry. And we need to grasp that number. So as he comes off uh, at the top, and you're always ascending up to Jerusalem, but you come down into a valley, and then he's going to head up into the city. And what you're going to have is is 100,000 people proclaiming him their king and making it impossible for the leaders of Israel to wait any longer in getting rid of him. Christ has entered Jerusalem on many occasions through his three years. He always enters quietly. He always comes in unannounced. Yet this Passover, he's coming in. There's a crowd of people surrounding him, proclaiming him king. In other words, he's coming in, fulfilling messianic prophecy, and he's not coming in quietly. He is God's true king and worthy of honor as no king or queen on earth could imagine. But my whole point this morning is to kind of take a brief look at how all the parties that were there responded to the king and what we can learn from them as we're grasping his majesty. What I hope we walk away from at the end is a true sense that Jesus Christ is king, that he reigns, that he has all authority, that he is the sovereign. What should the biblical response be to the ultimate king? And so we'll begin looking at the people's response. And I'm going to read Luke 28 through 37. It says, When he had thus spoken, he went before ascending up to Jerusalem And it came to pass when he was come nigh to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying, go ye into the village over against you. In other words, he's in Bethany going to Bethage uh, to get it. In which at your entering you shall find a colt tied whereon yet never man sat. Loose him and bring him hither. And if any man ask you, why do you loose him? Thus shall you say unto him, because the Lord hath need of him. And they that were sent went their way and found even as he had said unto them. And as they were loosing the colt, the owners therefore thereof said unto him, Why loose ye the colt? And they said, The Lord hath need of him. 
And they brought him to Jesus, and they cast their garments upon the colt, and they set Jesus thereon. And as he went, they spread their clothes and the way. And he was come nigh, even now at the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed be the King that cometh in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And I forgot to tell you we're in Luke chapter 19, verse 28. I didn't know if you could find verse 28 in your Bible, but you just keep looking till you find what I read and you'll be in good shape. I forgot he read the whole compilation there. So we're in Luke, Luke's account of the triumphal entry. And as we saw earlier, upwards of 100,000 people are gathered along the way as they descend into the valley and then climb up into Jerusalem. He's in Bethany. And so on Monday of the Passion Week, and by the way, there's no such thing as Palm Sunday. It's Palm Monday, but we call it Palm Sunday. It's Monday of the Passion Week. He sends the disciples to Bethphage to grab his ride And I want you to realize something, omnisciently giving them instructions on where they should go and how they should respond. This is no prearranged thing. This is not that Jesus had snuck off in the night and talked to some owner and said, hey, can you tie a colt here? Because I'm going to send two guys and they're going to pick the colt up, go ahead and ask them and then answer this way. No, being the king of kings, being the sovereign, being the all-knowing God, he's sending them off to, to get his ride, to get the donkey knowing because he's God that it will be there and knowing that the people will ask about what they're doing and knowing what their response will be because he's God. Don't miss in the triumphal entry the obvious implications that he is God, that he is omniscient, that he knows all. And so we come to the first response of the people and it's permission The disciples come into Bethphage, and everything is exactly as Jesus said. They untie the animal and are questioned as predicted. The response of the owners, and I'm tying that into the people, the animal can be used by the Lord. There's no question. What they possessed could be utilized by Christ without further explanation. What are you doing with my donkey? The Lord has need of him. And there's no other dialogue. There's no other conversation. I put here as a a thought, I wonder if the same could be said of us. Does the Lord have right to your possessions? He does, by the way, uh, without you giving it. But do you have the same response as these owners? The Lord has need of it. That's all I need to know. But permission was not the only response. All the people in attendance at the triumphal entry engaged in adamant praise And it began with honoring the king, using their clothing to cover the path of the king, laying down the clothes they used daily so a donkey could walk over it. As you well know, I just returned from India, and I can attest that you don't normally lay your clothes on the ground. I made every effort to have my clothes not touch the ground. Part of that's because I was wearing my clothes multiple times because I went with a carry-on, which I don't advise for a 10-day trip. Um, We were visiting the graveside of William Carey, and sadly, uh, the college he started is now a liberal, liberal college, and they're letting everything William Carey get run down. Uh, they have charge of the graveside, which is not connected to the college. And so Cody, Joseph, and I went to visit the graveside, and I was walking, and I, I'd seen from pictures. I'd read a, a biography, so I knew a little bit where it would be at. Uh, Cody's like, you know where it is? I'm like, I'm positive it's right there. We're walking, and then he made a note, because I'm walking on what I considered marshy ground. Uh, and Cody says... That's not fresh water you're walking on. Um, And he was right. So I instantly checked my pants to make sure nothing was wicking up 
my pant leg. Why is that? What's my point? You don't typically lay the clothes you're going to wear for an animal to walk over. You don't take what you need on a daily basis, and they would have even less clothing, and set it down unless you are honoring the king. Unless you are trying to show utter submission, and and by spreading their clothes down to show, uh, they showed that they were submitting to him, symbolically placing themselves under his feet as their king. We oftentimes have too much pride in ourselves. We refuse to submit to that level in our life. Oh, I'll bow to the king, but I'm not letting my knee touch the ground. That's the implication. And they are throwing their clothes before him so his donkey can walk over it because they want to typify in this moment their complete surrender uh, to him. And then that physical act was accompanied by a vocal one because it says it continued with loud praise. Uh, the, the crowd that had been coming with them from Jericho is now met uh, with the people coming out of the city. That's where some of the other accounts let us know, the ones that are going to throw down palm trees. Uh, and they praised him abundantly. They acknowledged his miracles, talk about all the mighty works that they had seen, specifically Lazarus and the two blind men that are healed. And then they looked forward to his reign. They sang Psalm 118:26, Blessed be him that comes in the name of the Lord. And they were acknowledging that he was the Messiah, and they were looking forward to his salvation. But this is where it all turns south. The salvation they sought, though, was earthly and not eternal. Uh, In Matthew's account, the word uh, praying for our salvation, it it, it implies the idea of rescue and deliverance. And I put here as, as as a connect point, their permission and praise really should be labeled as unauthentic. It's manipulative in nature. It's one ultimately focused on their freedom and rule, focused on the temporal and missing the eternal. When they do not get what they want, and it's within one week, they join the Pharisees with a cry of crucify him. So as we look at all the good that happened, as we dive in and we don't miss the lesson from their permission, their use of their their possessions, we don't miss the idea that they're laying their clothes down, that they're depicting full submission to him, but they weren't fully submitted to him. They were submitted to him as long as he did what they thought he would do, that he would come in and remove Roman rule, that they would reign supreme, that their nation would be at the top of the food chain, so to speak. And I put here as a question, is that our response to the king? Betrayal if we don't get what we think he should give us. And just take a minute and think about Western Christianity or Christianity across the board as we notice it. No matter what country I go in, I see this frail type of faith oftentimes. We're interested in Christianity as long as it gives us what we want. I will serve Christ if Christ gives me my life. And that's the people's response, actually. We'll do anything you want, Christ, as long as you give us what we want. Now, were they linking to Old Testament prophecy of the millennial kingdom? They were. The problem was they wanted something now that wasn't for now. And they wanted to bypass what was clearly depicted in Isaiah, that that the Messiah would suffer and that he would buy us for all eternity. Their praise was required in this moment. It was appropriate but needed to go deeper than the surface of life. And so does ours.
if we're going to respond to his majesty, if we're going to respond to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, then our praise must go deeper than the surface level of life. It cannot be an inch deep. Our praise needs to encompass all of who we are. Uh, Yet not all were pleased with the exuberant song, which takes us now to the leader's response. Again, still in Luke 19, now in verse 39. It says here, And some of the Pharisees from among the multitude said unto him, Master, rebuke thy disciples. And he answered and said unto them, I tell you that if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. And that's a great indication to us that God had orchestrated praise for his son, that this was planned and that praise would take place. And if the people weren't going to cry out, the rocks would. He would be praised as he entered into the city. The Pharisees are well aware that they could not silence the people. And I want you to understand, there's no way they can stop 100,000 people from crying out. And so they go to Jesus with their petition and they say to him, correct the praise and worship. And what they're saying is, you don't deserve this. You are not the Messiah. You are not the king. You are not supposed to be exalted this way. Stop those who follow you from doing this. Rebuke them. And what is his response? If they're quiet right now, the stones would praise him. And I put, sadly, I think the Pharisees would have preferred the stones to give praise and not the people. The the leader's response fits exactly how they have reacted to Christ throughout his whole ministry. Luke does a masterful job under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit showing us that the Pharisees have not changed. From start to finish, we have people who are against Christ. I put here, their response was in a way authentic. It wasn't outside of their character, but it was hateful and selfish. Imagine this, Rome rules. The Romans allowed you to run your country as long as you fit underneath their government. So as long as you obeyed their laws, they would allow you some autonomy. You would be allowed to function and rule. And so these Pharisees, scribes, and leaders, they've been given a sense of rule, of power. But if you are the Roman government and you have two million Jews in Jerusalem, and the Jews were not known for being easy. They were not the easy group of people. There were always some tension. There was always some problem. They're always complaining to the emperor. They're always in the business of government. And so you see 100,000 people screaming that the king has come. Well, there's only one king in the Roman world, and that's Caesar. And so if you're a Pharisee, if you're a ruler, if you're a leader, you're petrified because there's 100,000 people now screaming that the king has arrived, a Jewish king, the king they've been talking about that's going to take over from Rome. They're not quiet about it. And so as they hear this praise, they're going to Jesus and saying, quiet the people, because what they're saying doesn't fit our agenda or power. They're worried that this praise is going to result in Rome coming down on them. What's the end result of all of this? A corrupt trial. They pushed for death and a collusion with the hated Romans. To stop this problem, they're going to ultimately, in a week, lie break every one of the laws they supposedly hold to. His trial is an absolute farce. It's, it's awful. They break every rule they've set for themselves. And ultimately, they collude, they, they tie in with Rome, manipulating the system to get him murdered. And I put, is that our response to the king? When his authority bring in, brings into question our earthly arrangements, 
do we want silence? And I want you to process that because there are times when the authority of Jesus Christ is going to mess with your life and how you set it up. It's not going to be easy. It's going to change work, and it's going to change how you walk. It's going to change what you're able to do. It's going to change how much money's in your bank account. It's going to change what kind of car you may drive. It's going to change what kind of freedoms you may have. And when that comes into conflict, and that's what the leaders are, because what they had, they wanted to keep. They're fine with their power growing. They're not fine with it shrinking. They're not fine with the change. And so as they looked at him being proclaimed the king and the Messiah, they said, these people need to be quiet because it's going to mess with our life. Is that how we respond to the king, wanting nothing to mess with the good thing we have going here on earth? And so oftentimes we become uncomfortable or mock those who seem to desire to submit all to the ultimate king. What they didn't realize is how fickle the people were and that they weren't understanding the depth of what Christ had come to do. They obviously don't understand it either. And I put here, too often we give shallow praise and acknowledgement, not thinking of the true depth of his sovereignty, his lordship, or we tend to resist any interference with our lives. I'm happy to be a Christian as long as it doesn't mess with what I want to do and what I'm able to accomplish and what position I hold at my job and what, you name it. I'm, I'm fine being a believer if it doesn't mess with my life. And that's where the leaders were. Refusing to see his right to all. Our responses are centered on self and not on the adoration of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Yet, as Jesus draws to Jerusalem, his heart is seen as he shares the reality of the situation and expresses it all from his eternal perspective. And that's the one we're supposed to have. And it's all seen, and I put in the king's response, 41 through 44. And don't miss this. And when he was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it. And if you mark in your Bible, highlight that. Mark it. Because that speaks to where Christ is and how the king of kings responds to people who reject him. He's about to give the reality to them, the condemnation of Israel, and they will face utter destruction in A.D. 70. But he weeps over them. He says this, saying, If thou hadst known, even thou, at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes. For the day shall come unto thee, that thine enemy shall cast a trench about thee, encompass thee around, and keep thee on every side, and shall lay thee even with the ground, in other words, annihilate you, and thy children within thee. And they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another, because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. Kind of come back to the monarch thing. Queen Elizabeth II became well known for her stoicism and lack of emotions in public. Uh, Heather did some research for me, but she looked up, and there's no written rule that a, that a royal, an English royal, can't cry or display affection, but it clearly became an unwritten one. Your job was to remain publicly detached from any situation. You're not to show any emotion or any connection. Uh, the queen, uh, it looks like she only cried when her yacht was decommissioned, just to show how, how deep she was. Um, that's not the response of the true king of kings. Instead, we find that he wept. And the word translated wept in our English is the strongest word for weeping in the Greek language. This is what it really means if you're going to break it all the way down. It's the agonizing sobbing of Jesus over the hardness of Israel. 
This is not a tear that trickles down his cheek. This is a literal pause. If you're watching this, as you're proclaiming him king, if you were paying attention to the king, you would have watched him in agonizing weeping, heartbroken type of weeping for the hardness of Israel, their rejection of his life, the rejection of his salvation. He wept because what follows after his crying was a clear and tragic prediction. They had missed the day. Not today, not just this day. They had missed the day of his visitation. They had missed his coming to earth. What had been predicted through all the Old Testament was clearly he would have to die, Isaiah 53. They have missed what Scripture has taught them. They've missed his whole time on earth. And they've missed the peace. And that's not referring to temporal peace. That's not peace with Rome. That's not peace with other nations. They had missed the peace, referring to their peace with God for all eternity. Why did Christ weep? Because his nation, the Jews, God's chosen people, had missed the whole point of him being on earth. They wanted an earthly king. They wanted 70 years of freedom and reign and riches and reward. And he came to give them eternal life. They've missed that day and thus have missed the peace that you could have with God. There's only peace with God through Jesus Christ. And they're going to have to face horrific judgment. AD 70, Titus, who ends up being emperor for a short period of time, would come with the Roman army and annihilate Jerusalem. Jerusalem would be surrounded. It's also predicted in the Old Testament. Everything leveled, including the temple and really their whole religious system. What they clung to was going to be wiped off the mat in four decades. The people would be killed, and they mentioned that. You're going to be leveled to the ground and your children. In other words, there is no mercy. This is not soldiers fighting, and the soldiers are going to die. They're going to come murder everyone in the city, which Titus did. As MacArthur notes, those stones lying in the rubble would be the ones that cried out in judgment on the unbelieving nation. Not one stone left on the other. Horrific judgment because they refused to see the time of thy visitation. They refused to see the Lord, Jesus Christ, God incarnate, offering them salvation and redemption. John 1, 10 through 11 says this, He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, speaking of Israel, and his own received him not. Our Savior's response was authentic and built on truth and reality. He wept for Israel because he loved them and knew what repercussions came with their rejection. The Savior walked among them, fulfilling messianic promise after promise, performing miracles, teaching of his kingdom, and they just wanted their own. Three plus years that he has presented eternity to them. The reign of Christ, the reign of God, the kingdom of God. And they said, no, thank you. We want our own kingdom. And I know for a fact in the room this size, there's people here that say no thank you to God's kingdom and they pursue their own. And they think, wow, there's not enough, there's not enough reason. There's not enough proof. There's, not enough, there's no driving need for that. I don't want to get involved in crazy religion. And I, I just want you to read again. Sadly, the people of Israel did not know the time of their visitation. They missed the point of the Messiah's walk on earth. They missed the truth of his eternal salvation. And that truth broke his heart. 
And then I put this question, does our response look anything like his? Do we weep for the lost because we realize his reality and their impending judgment, or do we gloss over reality and make everyone okay? And if you're sitting here and and you are consumed with your own kingdom and you don't understand the reality of serving an eternal kingdom, I hope you'll read over these verses over and over and over again, and I would petition you, don't miss the time of your visitation. Don't miss the Savior. But to kind of wrap all this up, we go all the way back to the beginning. What is the correct response to the ultimate king? What would indicate that we truly grasped his majesty? Unquestioned submission to him. Unquestioned submission to him. If you truly understand that he's king of kings and Lord of lords, that he rules and that he reigns, there is unquestioned submission to him. There is never a question of what's good for you. It's what do I do to serve the master? He would have the all of your life, including the use of anything you owned. He would receive the deepest honor and worship for who he is, unpolluted by what we want. His praise shouted from the hilltops would be our joy, and we would understand the gravity of a world that rejects the King of kings and Lord of lords. We would not be nonchalant about the consequences of spurning the one true king. That is how we respond to the ultimate king. Let's pray together. Dear Father, thank you for the opportunity we have to journey through the Passion Week. And as we begin now uh, with your entry into Jerusalem, when you come in, not quietly, not late, but instead with a broadcast to your reign and your rule, everyone is uncomfortable as you enter Jerusalem, consumed and concerned with their life and what it means to have an ultimate king. And as we journey through this week and journey through life, I hope that we understand and grasp your majesty that you are the King of kings and Lord of lords, that you reign, and that there is no questioned submission to you, but unquestioned submission, that we give all to you, we sacrifice all uh, to you, we are under uh, your complete direction. You are our master, and we serve you without any hesitation. And as we walk into uh, the rest of the Passion Week, as we, we journey close to your sacrifice on the cross as we start to see and feel your agony. And then on Easter, I hope that we can grasp and see your victory to understand what it means to have a living Lord, to have uh, you in the heavens, that, that you are advocating for us to understand the implications of your resurrection. But as we go there, help us understand the implications of your majesty, that you are God supreme. You've shown it through this whole study. You started by omnisciently sending the disciples to get the donkey, knowing exactly where it would be and what would be asked of it. And then we see again in your prediction of what's going to take place in Jerusalem, clearly defining exactly what would unfold, which does in four decades. Throughout the whole of your triumphal entry, your omniscience is on display. Your kingship is evident. Help us as your people, your children, Uh, to fully acknowledge that. Help our praise not to be shallow. Help us praise you for who you truly are. Help us to understand the depth of your salvation and apply that to the everything of our lives. In your precious and holy name, amen.